Food trucks and pop-up restaurants are two trends that have dramatically changed the food preparation and consumption landscape around the world over the past few decades. But in the prior 10 years or so, in particular, food trucks in their relatively modern incarnation have an ancestor in the Texas chuck wagon, a cattle ranching mainstay that was essentially a typical covered wagon, one of many in a wagon train that was adjusted slightly to serve as the caravan's pantry, the kitchen, the butcher shop, and the central gathering space for those working on the range. Settlers and cattle drivers and loggers and other frontier dwellers would travel alongside these chuck wagons because it was a centralized source of food, and generally the food was a combination of beans, salted and preserved jerky-like meats, coffee, and corn and sourdough biscuits. Anything that had a lot of calories and that would travel well before refrigeration was a thing. Horses were eventually phased out in favor of motorized vehicles, and the wood and iron wagons evolved alongside the prevailing technologies of the day into something that looked a bit more like a piece of artillery than a vehicle. 19th and early 20th century Germans actually called their version of this upgraded field kitchen the Gulaschkanonen or goulash cannon, because it looked so much like one of their cannon turned upright, the chimney on the cooking cart serving as the cannon barrel. The so-called mobile canteen evolved from this general concept and became popularized in part because of the British tradition of a tea break, which served as a bit of a morale booster during World War II, when British mobile canteens gave Allied soldiers a place to congregate, to sip a bit of caffeine and eat a snack, and to chat with their fellow servicemen. The mobile canteen was usually quite a bit like the German goulash cannon in nature, something that looked a bit more like a street vendor's hot dog cart than a chuck wagon, but different versions existed, and the line between the cart version and the vehicle version was fuzzy, with an array of both larger and smaller types often being deployed to fill different roles in different types of geography. Whatever the shape, though, the core concept remained the same, a portable kitchen and food distribution system that allowed those running it to feed a large number of people with relatively simple offerings compared to those that could be provided by building-based larger and more versatile kitchen setups anyway. The truly modern food truck, as in one that is actually based in a real truck or van or bus or trailer of some kind, was iterated from the truck-based mobile canteen that was popularized alongside the cart-based, mostly goulash and tea-serving versions during World War II. Most of these sorts of trucks would generally serve a similar purpose to their wartime kin, in that they were parked at construction sites or similar, often more remote places where there were plenty of mouths to feed and few or no other options for lunchtime sustenance. As such, the food served was also usually quite simple. Burgers or tacos, chips and soda, things that could be cheaply and easily produced and served on site, often without even places to sit. Food that was meant to be consumed even while standing in between bouts of long, hard work. This perception of the food truck changed in the early 2000s, however, 
The economic crash that culminated in 2008 led to a collapse in the construction markets around the world. And by 2009, there was a trend emerging in many larger cities in which trucks suitable for building these mobile kitchens were suddenly being sold in fire sale-like conditions. The construction market no longer needed them. And entrepreneurs, some from the food industry, some entirely new to it, were scooping up these assets to see what they could make of them. In some cases, the trucks were used to sell more of the same, the cheap burgers and tacos that they had always been known for, just to a potentially larger market. But in other cases, these new owners were experimenting with different types of food, and they often made use of recently popular technologies like social networks and the preponderance of smartphones throughout which they could alert people, often via those social networks, to tell people where they would be parked next and when. Some of these truck owners also decided to take risks with their food, leveraging the far lower costs of operation compared to running a restaurant to prepare high-end offerings for relatively low costs to see what sold and what didn't. As a consequence of that confluence of relatively inexpensive trucks, the ability to reach potential customers even if they weren't parked at a traditionally hot location for serving food and foot traffic, and the risk-taking enabled by the relatively low overhead, food trucks became trendy and known for being the place where you were likely to get something really good for probably five or ten bucks less than it would cost in a restaurant. Food trucks became, then, sort of like the brazen startup-ish alternative to what was happening in the traditional building-based restaurant industry, a segment of the food industry that was becoming increasingly dominated by big brands and sub-brands introduced by those big brands and well-known chefs who already had their funding systems in place, which allowed them to ride out and flourish within the post-economic crash economy. Typical restaurants were becoming the man, and food trucks were the new, hip, and edgy alternatives. Modern pop-up restaurants came about at a similar time because of similar variables, but are somewhat different in their heritage and contemporary incarnation. Rather than wagons and wartime necessity, the pop-up restaurant is the spiritual successor to the home-based restaurant, where professional chefs or enthusiastic amateurs would invite friends, family, or perfect strangers into their home or into a shared common space with a kitchen to enjoy something that they've made. This is a tradition that is rich and common in some cultures around the world. The idea of eating at the one kitchen housed in a particular neighborhood or community, for instance, that's especially common in areas that were recently rural and which quickly urbanized. It doesn't make sense for everyone in such an area to have kitchens in their tiny apartments. But if you could have one or two homes with kitchens nearby, and the owners of those kitchens don't mind running a sort of unofficial small business from that kitchen, feeding the neighbors for a small fee, then you're good to go. It's a smart use of the space available. But the current, commercialized version of this concept came about, like the modern food truck, as a consequence of economic collapse and social media popularity. In a lot of places, it's illegal to sell food that you have produced yourself without a license, without inspections, without fundamental checks to make sure that you aren't poisoning people, aren't unfairly competing with the food industry, and things of that nature. Some of these checks could be superseded, though, if you were able to reach people directly, to get word to the right people who would pay you to feed them, without you needing to advertise publicly. 
Thus, small communities, network-enabled supper clubs, have emerged around the world, in some cases operating sort of like an Airbnb with an online hub and payment processing, and in other cases operating more like Craigslist, a little more edgy, a little less put together, with fewer pieces of formal infrastructure, which makes it all the easier to set up in a very unofficial manner and to collapse it without consequence if the law should come knocking and decide to shut you down. This model, over the course of the prior decade, has allowed many chefs to try out their recipes and perfect a menu before seeking investment for a more formal restaurant, or before risking their own money to invest in the same. And it was so successful in this regard in allowing very small risks to be taken while fleshing out a restaurant concept, thousands of dollars maybe instead of millions in many cases, that the model has since been expanded with unoccupied generic public spaces being rented out for a song by individuals wanting to open a streamlined version of their intended restaurant or with companies providing the service of setting up such streamlined spaces so that everyone involved can invest a little to see if the idea and the food and the chef that they might invest in is a good, large-scale future investment option. As a result, pop-up restaurants, like food trucks, have gained a bit of a reputation for having upended the food industry, with a lot of the most interesting stuff happening not within pricey restaurants, but in these more casual venues and non-venues. These spaces have become incubators for promising chefs and have been invested in by non-foodie entrepreneurs who see the writing on the wall and recognize that by investing a little in a promising upstart early on, they can get in on the ground floor of whatever that person ends up doing next, providing a seed round investment in the hot new pop-up restaurant success story potentially, before the rest of the investing world even knows that this new chef exists. What I want to talk about today is a new dynamic within the prepared food industry, one that, like food trucks and pop-up restaurants, has the potential to change how this space operates, and one that is similarly predicated on a set of technological and societal shifts that have recently taken place, and that may end up changing everything. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from TechCrunch, and it's entitled A Rare Glimpse into the Sweeping and Potentially Troubling Cloud Kitchens Trend. Now, the term cloud kitchen is an example of what is called a proprietary eponym, meaning a brand name that has become successful enough that it's used as a generic term for the product to which it is adhered. Here in the United States, for instance, many people say Kleenex instead of tissue, or Band-Aid instead of bandage or plaster, and Ping Pong, which interestingly is the name of a specific brand of table tennis game trademarked by a British company in 1901 and then sold to the U.S. board game company Parker Brothers in 1930. We say Ping Pong which is that specific brand, instead of table tennis. Ping pong, then, is a specific version of table tennis, the word mark still owned by Parker Brothers, but most people I know, including myself, call the game ping pong, regardless of who made the equipment for the game that they're referring to. That makes the term ping pong a proprietary eponym. Interestingly, the formalizing 
of the proprietary part of the Cloud Kitchen proprietary eponym seems to have occurred alongside the popularization of the term itself. So this term and the company that uses this brand name came about around the same time rather than one coming substantially earlier than the other. Travis Kalanick, the former CEO of Uber and one of the wealthiest people in the United States, started a venture fund, a company through which he can make investments using his own money and the money of people who want him to invest for them, focused on what he called job growth. In practice, this seems to have largely meant scooping up real estate and figuring out things to do with that real estate, leveraging many of the same prevailing technological forces that he utilized while running Uber. In March of 2008, Kalanick bought a controlling interest in a company called City Storage Systems, and in June of 2018, via City Storage Systems, he took controlling interest in a UK-based company called Foodstars, which now exists as part of his portfolio alongside a US-based equivalent he also controls called Cloud Kitchen. And he is reportedly, currently, as I record this, undertaking plans to invest in or buy similar companies or companies that he can revamp so that they serve similar purposes in India and China and perhaps Saudi Arabia and other select locations in the Middle East as well. So City Storage Systems is a holding company through which he buys up real estate, ostensibly with the purpose of redeveloping currently run-down or undeveloped areas, which is a great way of framing a real estate company if you're hoping to get tax benefits along the way, but which through some lenses might actually turn out to be true, if not in exactly the way regulators might assume. More on that in a bit. These subsidiary companies that exist under that main umbrella company, the subcompanies being Cloud Kitchen, Food Stars, and the like, they are the first round of attempts to monetize these otherwise vacant real estate holdings in scalable and flexible ways. Now, there are other options being worked on here too, including those being developed within a sibling company called Cloud Retail, which will likely be some kind of pop-up shop or product delivery-based version of these food-focused companies' offerings. But the food thing is first, and based on the trends that he's responding to, that is probably for the best, in terms of getting returns on these investments at least. Now I mentioned that the term Cloud Kitchen was a proprietary eponym, and this is where that comes into play. The brand name Cloud Kitchen is based on a term that already existed, Cloud Kitchen, but it was at the time just one of many terms being used for this type of business model, and it wasn't even the most popular one until it was formalized with those proper noun capital letters. The more popular terminology for this segment of the food industry until the last year or so when those investments were made was Ghost Kitchen, and both Cloud Kitchen and Food Stars are examples of scaled-up, well-funded Ghost Kitchen businesses. A ghost kitchen is a restaurant that exists without a traditional storefront for customer access. Sometimes this means an owner has rented a portion of an existing restaurant's preparation space, so they can try out a menu or a restaurant model first before investing in their own isolated space. This menu would then typically either be offered through catering services inside another private rented space to customers who are invited for the purpose, supper club style, or, and this is increasingly the case, sold online, possibly for pickup at some designated space, but more often for delivery. 
Sometimes a ghost restaurant will be set up within an existing restaurant by the restaurant owner, so they can try out a new concept, either for an entirely new menu or for new dishes, before formalizing them into something more concrete. So you might have an Italian place that wants to try selling a burger that flies in the face of what they typically do. So they set up a separate sub-brand through which they sell this burger and maybe some fries along with a few other easily translatable things like desserts and sodas. And all of that takes place online for delivery only. Their normal restaurant continues to operate as it always has. No burgers are thrown into the mix. Nobody's messing with the traditional Italian food that has worked so well for them. But now, they have this sub-business that's operating out of the back, and they have the option to someday, maybe, add some of those experimental delivery items to the main menu. Or they can keep it as a sub-business that is delivery only. Or they can open up an entirely new restaurant or food truck or something along those lines, knowing that they already have a customer base and a valuable brand when they make that investment which dramatically reduces the risk involved in such an undertaking. And then there is the platform-born portion of this trend. The ghost restaurants established by delivery platforms, or incentivized by delivery platforms to exist, which are increasingly based out of kitchens built exclusively for this purpose, rather than out of existing kitchens, and which thus have certain advantages when it comes to working with delivery platforms, with the many apps through which customers can place orders for food prepared in these spaces. It's this last model that Kalanix companies are investing in and starting. They are buying up real estate, fixing those spaces up to be operational modular kitchens, and then either placing their own brands in those kitchens to churn out deliverable food, or allowing other companies, other chefs or would-be chefs, to rent the spaces from them. Selling the resultant food on the myriad food delivery apps that have popped up around the world, rather than at sit-down or take-out storefronts. This is the reason that if you order food through one of those delivery apps on your phone, there is a not insignificant chance that the restaurant you are ordering from does not actually exist. It is just food being produced in one of these ghost kitchens by one of these brands that were invented by one of these entrepreneurs to appeal to a certain demographic based on stats that they have gathered through these apps. That last bit is important. This is a different concept from pop-up kitchens or food trucks, and it's fairly radically different from running a traditional restaurant as well. Even the type of restaurant that takes a portion of their kitchen space and rents it out to somebody else or uses it for their own in-house sub-business concept. These ghost kitchens are actually more like co-working spaces than restaurants, and the numbers behind the business model are predicated on a lot of the same realities that have made co-working-based businesses such a boom market. Among those realities is the fact that it's becoming a lot less likely that you will have enough big, low-risk, economically sustainable businesses to fill the traditionally large footprint spaces that are available in certain parts of any city. So these entities that can afford to purchase these under-occupied, massive swaths of real estate can put down their money and then break these bigger spaces up into rentable, smaller spaces. And because there's less certainty with any individual occupant, but also because there's an advantage to being able to quickly up and down scale when need be, 
Many of these business models allow for shorter lease periods and the ability to add on more space modularly when necessary, or to be able to scale down tactically or as a slow type of retreat when warranted. And that means that these spaces generally don't have too much trouble finding renters. There are advantages and the price is typically right. Because of this, it's easy to see why Kalanick's company and several other real estate businesses might have decided that this is the way to go, that this is the facet of the food industry to focus on. And again, framing this focus as a job creation move potentially allows him to go to local politicians and say, hey, give me some monetary incentives to buy this space and I will make it worth your while. Job creation stats are always popular come election time. The food industry, and the food delivery industry in particular, right now though, offer further kindling to that investment fire. People will always need to eat, so it's a decent space to be involved in, in some way, whatever time period we might be talking about. But the numbers for prepared food delivery, in particular, are ballooning, and that inflation is likely the consequence of several intersecting technological and social trends. The research is still being aggregated on this for 2019, and the numbers seem to have changed fairly dramatically just in the past three years or so. But recent studies show that, as of mid-2019, the global market for online ordered prepared food delivery, so this does not include groceries or other packaged foods, is something like $94 billion a year. And that's estimated to increase by an average of 9% a year. Though that number is higher in countries that are consuming a lot of this type of food. Food as a service rather than just a product, like China and the U.S. Other research indicates that online ordered food from restaurants is increasing at three times the speed that dine-in traffic is growing. And that China has, by far, the largest customer base for online ordered food, with a total market volume of around $40 billion, followed by the U.S. in second place at around $22 billion. Let's keep those numbers in perspective, though. The global overall food retail market, consisting mostly of grocery store purchases, was valued at around $8.77 trillion in 2015, and is expected to reach about 12 and a quarter trillion by 2020. Compared to that, a worldwide valuation of 94 billion is tiny, though to be fair, it is a segment of a segment. It's a particular niche within the niche of having someone else prepare your food for you, rather than you buying it for yourself and preparing it yourself. And within that larger niche of restaurants and takeout and deliveries, this niche, online ordered deliveries, is growing quite quickly. Also worth noting is that, though currently small in raw monetary terms, the demographics that order the most food for delivery via apps and websites tend to skew younger. And they are joined by the younger, older demographics, folks in their mid-20s to their mid-30s, who make more money than average. So those two demographics, very young people and relatively young people who make more money than average, are at the top in terms of ordering food online for delivery on a regular basis. So while none of this is destiny, this isn't a crystal ball that predicts more and more growth for this facet of the food industry, it is potentially an indication that this niche could continue to grow as these young people grow older and have more resources to spend on this habit that they've adopted. 
This also shows that it is an industry that tends to attract wealthier than average consumers, which often leads to more investment, whatever the industry, because there's more money to be earned from people who have more money. And that consequent investment in things that wealthier people enjoy can in turn stimulate more growth by bringing in more interest from a wider variety of aspirational demographics over time. Such investments are almost certainly part of why this growth is already happening, too, because tech companies with well-stocked war chests are more likely to provide incentives to customers in the hope that those customers will give app-based ordering a try, or if they're already familiar with the concept that they will use their particular app instead of the ones provided by their competitors. Most developed markets at this point have at least two or three main competitors in this space, along with a handful of smaller, regional ones already. So those who are currently entrenched have almost certainly paved this path during their process of entrenchment. We are also seeing growth in this space. It is posited because of the increased comfort that we have, broadly at least, with having things delivered. We have an increased trust in and reliance upon dealing with business entities online. And we're growing accustomed to the ever-increasing efficiency of delivery models in general. Now, for all its flaws, and there are a great many, Amazon and their Prime program pushed the envelope in terms of what customers expect when it comes to online shopping. They created a system in which the customer can find whatever they want whenever they want and get it delivered quickly, often with low or zero delivery fees attached. The ability to order food from that place across town, then, or that place that has the vegan food but which always requires a long wait, to get that delivered to you instead while you sit around and do anything else, that is a compelling offer. Add to it the benefit of not having to leave the house, not having to put on pants, being able to kick back in front of Netflix, or continue working, answering emails while waiting for the delivery to arrive. That makes it, in some ways, even more compelling. Another benefit was tacked on to this foundational collection of benefits in 2013 when the so-called aggregator food ordering apps like Grubhub were joined by apps like Deliveroo. The previously available aggregators mostly just showed users all of the food delivery options in the region and then would sometimes offer incentives like coupons related to those existing options. The latter, though, which are often referred to as the new delivery options by market research firms, introduced the option of ordering delivery from restaurants that never before had delivery options available. So that restaurant that you like or the diner with the burger that you enjoy, neither of which had their own delivery options previously, could now deliver to you via workers employed by these new delivery companies. They would swing by and pick up a carryout order, converting that carryout into delivery as part of their service. This change was fairly revelatory for this segment of the industry, and it accomplished it by making use of a lot of tech world tactics, many of which are both a blessing and a curse, a very mixed bag. These new delivery companies could afford to provide these services, for instance, because of the economics of the gig economy. This is the same tactic employed by companies like Uber when they employ drivers without actually employing drivers. If your grander strategy is to provide services that would traditionally require a sprawling workforce with its accompanying overhead costs, 
The gig economy allows you to pseudo-employ that workforce without being on the hook for things like insurance, firing and hiring laws, and a lot of the other hurdles and hoops that come with bringing on true employees. These freelance-style contracts enabled this type of delivery because without it, the costs associated with such a service would have priced it far beyond the range of mainstream accessibility. This gig economy structure is also, however, speeding up a shift from an economy of employees to one in which there is a lot less security and certainty for huge portions of the workforce, including those who drive rideshare cars and deliver food to our doors. A nuanced discussion about the gig economy is a much bigger conversation, but the important thing to know here is that there are pros and cons to it, that it is a response to a major shift in the economy, but also is one of the catalysts and accelerators of that shift, and that it's gotten a mixed response around the world, as regulators have begun to weigh in, with some of them bringing down the hammer on companies that try to lower costs via this model, while others say that it's okay for now, and we will see what happens. Beyond employment condition concerns, though, there are other potential future and existing consequences within this space that are worth keeping in mind when learning and thinking about the world of cloud kitchens. First is that, like the ride-sharing world, and Uber in particular, the owners of these companies seldom hide the fact that they are looking to further optimize this space to the point where they can do the majority of the work without people in the loop at all, or with humans there to maybe manage the robots and software, but as few of them as possible compared to what's required today. This means autonomous cars and drones to make deliveries. It means automating parts of the cooking process or the communication between customer and company, maybe by using software like Google Duplex, which can schedule things for you and which sounds quite a bit like a real human, even going so far as being able to engage in simple small talk on the phone with actual humans. This could be good in the sense that it would potentially lead to lower prices for customers, though that would depend largely on what expectations of returns the investors at a particular company have. And based on the amount of money being funneled into these businesses at the moment, it's likely that most of that additional profit margin would go into their pockets, or maybe as an edge case, would be used to bleed their opposition to death with promotions and temporary regional discounts. So there's a chance that some of these automation-based efficiencies could be widely beneficial, but there's also a chance that it will mostly be beneficial to the folks up top, not everyone else. Second, we might also see a change in how cities are set up and how they look and feel when you're walking or cycling or mass transiting your way from place to place. They kind of blend in when you're not hungry, but within urban areas in particular, a lot of real estate is occupied by food purveyors of different sorts. And while it's unlikely that they would all go out of business, even if delivery options really start to dominate, there's a good chance that our options in this regard would be dramatically reduced, leaving would-be diners with far fewer options, unless they have a phone through which to place an order and some place to have that order delivered. Keep in mind that a lot of these cloud kitchen setups don't even have windows, much less places to sit down and eat. So if you swapped out all of the sit-down restaurants or walk-in food counters with cloud kitchen equivalents, you would have block after block of what amounted to warehouses, rather than businesses that add to the local flavor. That's not to say that this aesthetic priority could not change, and it's not to say that food offerings would absolutely disappear if online delivery services came to dominate. 
but in certain areas in particular, like those being bought up by the block, by Kalanick and his ilk, it's likely that we will see the emergence of warehouse districts populated primarily by gig workers, emerging in these areas that were supposed to be revitalized with actual job creation in mind. Instead, we could see something that approximates the concept of job creation and implies that it will make the area a nicer place as a result, but which, in practice, could actually have the opposite effect. Third, it's possible, and maybe even likely, that we will begin to see a lot of the middlemen being cut out of this industry as scale is achieved and the model reshapes to prioritize higher profit margins. What this generally looks like is a platform-building business playing friendly with the incumbent entities in an industry for a while, and then someday cutting them out of the picture, pretty much as soon as they are able to replicate that incumbent's offering decently well, so they can either then starve them or straight-up boot them from the sales channel that they control. A perfect example of this is Amazon and the many sub-brands that they own and sell on their marketplace. The way this works is Amazon invites all the brands on the planet to come sell their stuff through the Amazon marketplace, promising them a new source of customers and algorithms on the website that will help them solve the online selling problem that most companies are bad at making work. Then, when a clothing brand or a brand that makes batteries starts sending their customers to Amazon, Amazon is able to replicate some of those products with a generic version of the same, and then suggest that generic version that they own to customers who previously bought that other name brand version. This allows them to very often undercut the brand that they invited to the party in terms of price, but more importantly, it allows them to capture that existing brand's customers, making them Amazon customers instead. Amazon has over 70 sub-brands of this kind at the moment, most of them in the clothing and accessories world, but their sub-brands sell products ranging from women's swimwear to batteries to bags to packing materials to simple electronics, like phone chargers. And most of the products that they sell were inspired by other brands that were or are sold on their store that Amazon noticed were selling particularly well, and because they have that data, and the brands on their marketplace do not, they can target only the most viable products for replication and replacement in this way. Now, I use Amazon as an example here because they are the perfect example of the pros and cons of this setup. It can definitely be a positive thing, especially if you're a customer, but it can be a serious negative if you are the company that they are ripping off and undercutting. But I also use them as an example because they actually have a horse in this food delivery race. Amazon ran a sub-brand called Amazon Restaurants for a few years before closing it down in June of 2019, something that they'd already done with their UK-based wing of this particular subsidiary back in 2018. In May of 2019, though, they announced a more than half-billion-dollar investment round that they had led in the UK-based food delivery company Deliveroo. And it was suspected that they intended to use that in that they now had with the company to help them get their foot in the door with food delivery around the world. This investment has recently been called into question by regulators who said, okay, this kind of looks like monopolist behavior, so let's slow down and see what's really happening. And Amazon in response has claimed that they are not intending to absorb Deliveroo, they just want to work with them to deliver prepared food alongside the other things they deliver 
Whatever the truth of the matter, and whatever regulators decide in this particular case, Amazon definitely wants in on this space. And Deliveroo, through their subsidiary Deliveroo Editions, is involved in the cloud kitchen industry. They've been getting restaurants to provide them with Deliveroo-only menus and have invested in kitchen real estate and communications and branding services as well, setting up their own cloud kitchen assets to help them and anyone they might work with in the future, not naming any names, to establish differentiation with their competitors, but also make investments potentially in their own restaurant brands that exist only within these cloud kitchens and on their app. So that model... The Amazon model of setting up the infrastructure and then absorbing or replacing all the other entities that use it, many of which benefit from the short-term gain of having their products on such a widely used marketplace, only to be suffocated by the better-funded, more powerful entity that controls it all. That is very much a possibility in the world of cloud kitchens as well. And variations on that theme are already occurring, even now. Grubhub, for instance was recently called out for buying up the URLs, the web addresses, for restaurants that are using their service. The idea here, they claim, is that this allows them to better serve the restaurants that are on their app, so that folks searching for them online can more intuitively be directed to where they can order from that restaurant immediately. But the less generous take on this news is that Grubhub now owns these restaurants' online presence, which means they can never leave Grubhub can never stop dealing with them. And if they piss Grubhub off for some reason, they could find their URL redirecting to a local competitor's website. That's all theoretical, of course, but this is broadly being seen as kind of a douchey power grab by Grubhub. And though we will see how it plays out, it is a decent indication that the stakes are heating up here, that they would make this kind of move to try to lock these restaurants on to their app and to keep them from working with their competitors. We are also likely to see more of what Deliveroo is doing, going for a vertical integration play, opening up their own kitchens and incentivizing local businesses to make portions of their offerings exclusive to them in order to provide distinction between Deliveroo and their competitors, but also to lock those resources, these food creators and brands, into their platform, making it more difficult for them to switch over to a competitor or to work with multiple platforms instead of just theirs, or potentially to do their own online play that they control, to own their own platform, their own website, their own app. There are also already companies, if you have the money to invest, ready to jump in and build you a virtual business, a cloud kitchen-based restaurant renting you the space, setting up the order-taking technology, providing you with a logo and a name and a vibe, and potentially even the food itself, the recipes. They can hook you up with gig workers to run the kitchen and deliver the food. It's all plug and play. And that means portions of this industry are becoming a lot more replicable and systematized. And differentiation will become ever more important as things become increasingly mass-produced and interchangeable in this way. It also means that human beings, and even to a certain degree brands, are becoming more like replaceable cogs, demoting the value of a brand and the value of a skilled worker in favor of cost and speed optimized variants instead. Now again, this is neither inherently good or inherently bad. It just is. It is a change that is occurring. I have all kinds of issues with Amazon and how they do business, and yet I keep using them, even after thinking through all the downsides and comparing them to the alternatives. 
there's a good chance that in the near future that same conflict will exist for many of us with many of these cloud kitchen companies. There will be a lot of pros and a lot of cons to take into account. The food and service may get cheaper and perhaps even better by some standards. But what happens to our local businesses, the streets we walk, the restaurateurs who spent decades building up their reputation, the food that is not optimized for delivery, but instead some other standard of quality? All of these things could become more scarce and more expensive, where they're still available, at least. I think we'll also see a lot of new business models that emerge as a consequence of this new paradigm. If delivery services become the norm, how about a community space where you can have food delivered and consume it together with other people? A space that serves as a drop-off point for a bunch of different nearby cloud kitchens. A third place beyond work and home where we can congregate and catch up and enjoy food that is different or better than we can make at home. We'd be paying for the ambiance, at least in part, but it seems like something that might be desirable if delivery does become the norm and restaurants start to disappear. And what that means is that the restaurant could be reinvented in this way as something else entirely that is still serving the same first principle's purpose, but maybe we're paying for different things and it's shaped somewhat differently. These spaces might focus on entirely different aspects of the eating or meeting up with friends ritual than they do today. And they might even give us something new and different and even better that current restaurants are not able to provide, that these efficiency-focused delivery apps and cloud kitchen factories forced us to build and experience. It may also be that we, our habits, our norms and expectations, are what end up changing what rearrange themselves around this new dynamic, to the point where we eventually can't remember what it was like to go out and get food, to have a place where you sit down and eat, rather than having it conveniently delivered to you wherever you happen to be. The same has happened in many different industries, even in just the past few decades, with new ways of doing things upending even the most solid-seeming tradition, with something that's a little faster, a little cheaper, a little more convenient, and utterly devastating to everything that came before for better and for worse. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Utopia for Realists, How We Can Build the Ideal World by Rutger Bregman. This book is interesting. It was actually a little bit more radical in some ways than I was expecting. Though looking at the reviews of it after I gave it a read, I probably could have been easily forewarned. The New York Times reviewer called Bregman, quote, a more politically radical Malcolm Gladwell, end quote, which feels like a pretty accurate description to me. His book has a somewhat familiar format, but he definitely approaches some topics in a more radical way. Topics like universal basic income, the 15-hour work week, things like open borders, like completely open borders and the potential benefits of doing something like that. He also goes through the concept of utopia and the concept of ideal and what it might take to build something better than what we have now and where we even start with that type of ideation leading to action. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Utopia for Realists by Rutger Bregman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. 
You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com, and you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and so on. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.